this week on the Backtable Podcast. So when I started doing this, I was really afraid of rupturing the portal vein. I didn't know what this portal vein would look like, right? It's chronically sure. occluded for 15 years. So I used to only dilate it to eight millimeters and I would not embolize competing varices. Why? Because if I embolize competing varices and my tips and portal vein goes down, then the patient has no outflow. So now we go all the way to 12. We go 10 and then 12. And we inject, we do reflux injections through our sheath that I keep mid-tips. And we will go ahead and embolize varices because now we know we've demonstrated the patency of this system is legitimate. That chronically scarred portal vein will stay open. And sometimes those competing varices are so big, I won't do everything in one setting. It's just a, a lot of a lot of work, a lot of contrast, whatever. Sure. But you can, if you want, go ahead and embolize the varices up front as long as you have a nice, mature, patent portal vena system, and you can see that right away. It's, it's amazing what the portal vein looks like when it was just a cord a few minutes before. You dilate it and there's flow. It's pretty surprising. It's sort of unbelievable, to be honest with you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, www.backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a written review, or reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our medical community, and we're going to do our best to make that happen. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Our next sponsor has a product that I literally use every day. I started taking it. And well, first of all, how did you, how did you first hear about it? Uh, you know, Sherry is kind of plugged into like the vitamin, I, I guess, supplement world. And like it was definitely uh, something she was familiar with. But like I didn't get it onto it until you told me about it. And I don't know the reason the, for a lot of the reasons like that you were kind of had been passed on to you about. Uh, quicker recovery, which I don't care about. Better sleep, which I care about a lot. Yeah, um, is really kind of why I got into it. And, and plus, like you know, I'm, no one is going to accuse me of having the healthiest diet. I mean, I'm kind of like a burger and fries kind of guy. Oh, and so I, I thought a little bit. Oh yeah, I'm super burger and fry oriented. But anyway, uh, so I don't have the healthiest diet, and so uh, I thought like some vitamins can do me well. And so it was it was the sleep component that did it for me. Um, if anyone tells me like there's any kind of sleep tip, I'm all about it. Oh, sleep is everything in your 40s, man. You know, when I turn 40, it's like sleep is essential to just feeling, you know, good the next day. You know, it wasn't until I, I guess I had kids where I realized how important sleep is. But you probably realize the same thing, right? When you've had well, I'm not door. 40, so I can't relate to that. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, the reason I know sleep is important, Sherry is in sleep medicine. And so any oh. kind of like sleep hack she can turn me on to. And she had vetted Athletic Greens. And so she gave it a stamp of approval. And, you know, it's all like about incremental gains. You know, I just want to be a little bit healthier. I'm moving into my 40s. Um, we got a little baby girl. I want to make myself last as long as possible. So, you know, for anything that it, you know, for me, it takes me 20 seconds. Like my routine in the morning is I, I come downstairs. I uh, pour it in like a very small amount of water. I'll do it like eight ounces or 12 ounces. I'll put the the whole thing, like the uh, the scoop and then add the, uh, I think it's like the vitamin D and then yeah. I chug it. Like it takes me like 15 seconds. I chug it right off the bat. I rinse a little bit more water and get the get the dregs kind of out and I'll uh, woof it down. It takes me, I don't know, less than a minute. I agree with you. I've been really happy with it. And Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com 
slash backtable VI. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash backtable V as in Victor, I as in India, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The other cool thing is the travel packs. I just, as you know, Chris, I just got back from New Orleans and mm-hmm. talk about recovery. Those travel packs really help. <laughs> That's very nice. And now back to the show. Our guest today is Dr. Riyad Salem, Chief of Vascular and Interventional Radiology at Northwestern. Today, we're going to be talking about portal vein recanalizations. Our topic today overlaps nicely with our Tips University series we did with Dr. Emmett Linsky. I'm kind of guessing, but I think that was May of last year. For those of you really into portal vein recans and tips, check out our episodes 125, 126, and uh, get a little extra info. I think those two in the archive are going to dovetail nicely with today's topic. So, Riyadh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure to be here. All right. So, just uh, briefly, um, you want to give us a little background and introduction about um, how you kind of got to IR? Oh, I got to IR. Well, um, like everything else, it's always by chance. And, you know, I trained in the, in the late 90s. And I had a vision on becoming a neuroradiologist. I uh, started my residency, thought it was pretty interesting, but got bored relatively quickly, uh, just reading films all day long. And I stumbled onto an IR rotation, and that person became one of my mentors, and there was no looking back. Nice. So what does your practice look like today? Is it just 20, uh, 24-7 portal vein recans? No. So right now, most of the work that I do is uh, hepatobiliary, so portal vein work, of course. Uh, interventional oncology, of course, is in my practice. I do a lot of adrenal vein sampling. You know, it's kind of a tricky little little thing that you have to do to make sure that you have the, the right sample. And then I've been working with uh, Sam Mooley to work on the prostate artery embolization. Those tend to be the four things that I focus on. Okay, nice. All right, so let's jump into the topic. Um, why do we need to care about portal vein recanalizations? Like, is this just... Like, what's the point? Like, um, portal vein recans, there's surgical fixes for this, right? Right. So I just want to make sure, Chris, as I talk about this, that I distinctly differentiate cirrhotics from non-cirrhotics. There are two okay. distinct entities. So I first started doing portal vein recans in the cirrhotic patient population. We're a busy transplant center, patients presented with portal cavernomatosis, no main portal vein. And while, yes, there are many surgical techniques to, to deal with this at transplant, they all are associated with very suboptimal outcomes. So it doesn't work very well. Yes, it's something you can do. It doesn't work very well. So we work to improve that outcome. You know, if you're going to go to the effort of, you know, transplanting an organ, you want to optimize use of that organ. And so we started to develop this technique to repair occluded thrombosed portal veins to make them open, patent, flowing, and usable intraoperatively. Was this something the portal, uh, the transplant surgeons came to you guys and asked if there was any something you could intervene on? Or did you guys, like, like how did you come to this? Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So all of our portal vein work is, is reviewed during our HCC tumor board on Thursday afternoons. And, you know, they often say, hey, guys, we've got this guy, I want to transplant, he's got no portal vein, I might do this conduit, this, that, what do you think? And so I said, well, you know, I saw a little cord of a portal vein, let me see if I can fix this. If I tips this and I open that cord... Maybe that'll be good enough. And lo and behold, you know, we tipped that person. It was tough because it was a very small portal vein cord. So it was early in our technique. It took us a long time. But you get a tips in, you expand that portal vein, and the surgeon now uses the port- the main native portal vein to make an end-to-end anastomosis. And now you have long-term outcomes that parallel a native normal uh, uh, liver transplant. So we've kind of laid a little bit of the groundwork. Do, we, do you want to talk a little bit about the difference between uh, the patient population you're describing I guess what I'm trying to differentiate is chronic portal vein thrombosis versus acute portal vein thrombosis. That's that's correct. This is distinctly different, right? Acute yes. PVT, 
a large expansile thrombus involving the portal vein, intraparenchymal maybe, the splenic, the mesenteria, et cetera. Patients got abdominal pain. There may be threatened bowel, um, ascites. All of these things exist. Now, that's a different entity, right? You get in, you tips, you thrombectomize, you lice, you do whatever you can to create outflow. Chronic PVT, what I'm referring to, is what happens when cirrhotic patients that uh, uh, develop uh, hepatofugal flow slowly uh, develop more and more flow away from the liver towards varices, and that portal vein scars down. It becomes occluded. It becomes a small fibrotic cord. So effectively, you have flow going up this SMV, out the splenic vein, into the varices. And so the surgeon, and if he needs to transplant that person, there is no good way to anastomose other than to create some sort of conduit from the SMV splenic vein confluence to a transplant. But these can be very difficult to do. You have to go behind the pancreas. It's very challenging. So the idea here is, is there anything we can do to improve that outcome for that patient and that surgeon? Okay. So you talked about the multidisciplinary uh, clinic, Pato uh, Bell on Thursday afternoons. Um, but what does the workup look like? as far as once you guys, once they're plugged into the IR system, like you see these patients and then what needs to happen from there? That's a great question. So we hope for the best, but plan for the worst. So I have to assume, I have to assume that if I do something, I will have a complication, that this person's liver will decompensate, that he will need to undergo not an elective transplant in eight, nine, 10 months, but that I will cause a decompensation for whatever reason. So all the patients are completely worked up for transplantation and are ready for transplant in case we need to do a rescue transplantation because of hepatic decompensation. We've done this procedure now hundreds of times, but we did have two people that decompensated quickly and needed a transplant within within two days. So you got to make sure they're worked up, their heart their hearts uh, can tolerate it, et cetera. So that is effectively the workup. The other part is a really good, high-quality imaging scan. I, I prefer a triphasic CT than an MR because it better differentiates for me the exact um, uh, vasculature that exists, particularly the splenic vein and the intraparenchymal splenic venous system that will come up a little bit later on when we talk about splenic access. Okay, well, that's a good segue to any to kind of jumpstart into the actual procedure. So you have high quality imaging, whether it's MR, uh, preferably CTA, but that may vary between operators. Yep. So when you have your patient, the workup's been done, they're on the table, where do you start? So 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when I started doing this, the the splenic access had not come to me yet. And so I would do my usual approach, my tips access. I put my sheath in. I like Mm -hmm. to do a wedge venogram with contrast, very thin dilute contrast, 20 of contrast, 40 of saline, because that refluxes very nicely. And so I start with that. Almost invariably, I would see nothing. You'd just see the cavernoma. You'd see nothing to puncture. But at minimum, it allowed me to get my right heart pressures, and, and maybe you might see something. Then at that point, I would puncture the peripheral right portal vein and try to drill back into the thrombose system, into the SMV. Now I've got a guide. I've got a, a pathway to get to puncture from above into that catheter. I'd put a snare usually and then push my wire down into the SMV from the IJ as I punctured that snare. That was a lot of work. There are times when, you know, you're lost. You think you're in, in main portal vein. You're in a caudate vein. Uh, that was a lot of work. And I remember early on, doing some cone beam CTs, you know, thinking that I'm in the SMV and sure enough, I got to the SMV, but not sure. And then you do a cone beam and sure enough, you're in a cord of a portal vein. So my first 30, 40, 50 cases of these were taking me five hours, seven hours. But the the reason I would work so hard for this is it makes a big difference for that patient. Because in many settings, Chris, while people say we can just do a jump graft or we may do this or we may do that, in many settings, 
I believe it is an indirect contraindication to transplant. Many places won't even do them. They won't say that, but they won't do it. So basically, it's a contraindication. And so it's upon us as interventional radiologists to find a solution to make that person a candidate. So after six, seven, eight hours, we'd get it. And then it makes a big difference for that patient. That was the early experience. So moving from the early experience where it was like a right portal stick and then trying to drill backwards and then through some advanced fluoroscopic techniques or cone beam CT, trying to figure out where you are. Whenever you have a patient on the nat, uh, table now, where do you start? Now our first access is the splenic access. And this came... What about what about uh, IJ access? Like, do you go oh, ahead I'm, and get IJ access oh, yes. and get all set up? Yeah, I'm okay, sorry. okay, yeah, gotcha. Yes, yes. I still do the IJ access. I still do a wedge venogram just because I like to learn about the intra-parenchymal mm -hmm. anatomy. I learn from that because every patient is different. But yes, my sheath is in the right portal vein. I do my wedge venogram and I leave everything. I've done my pressures. We are okay to proceed. Got then then my attention turns to the splenic vein. And this came to me in 2014, 2015. We were in that tumor board looking at a scan and they said, hey, Riyad, can you fix this? And just one image flashed where I could see the entire splenic vein all the way out deep into the splenic parenchyma. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. And I said, I'm not doing these eight hour procedures anymore. I'm puncturing that splenic vein. I'm going to drill back. And the surgeon's like, well, okay. I said, look, if I, something happens, I need your help, but I, I can't do these eight hour procedures all the time. So that took us, I did this case with my partner, current partner, Kush Desai, our first transplenic, maybe Sabine was in that case. It took us an hour and a half, hour and a half. Wow. So we went from eight hours to an hour and a half. And we were like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> this is like, this is the new way. This is the new way. And look, I spoke to my transplant surgeon, you know, Talia Baker at the time. I said, hey, if something happens and I, they bleed, I need your help. I may have to embolize a spleen. You may have to cauterize a hole, whatever. And we have, we have never had to do that. And so from there, the transplantic is the best. And if you think about it, Chris, it makes sense, right? You have good access to drill back into the way, the place you want to go. And, and it just makes best anatomic sense. And uh, we have not looked back. Transplantic tends to be, for these cases, our first approach. Now we've modified some now. We've used IMV and SMV that we can talk about a little bit later on. But, but in the, in the cirrhotic, 95% of the time we stick the splenic vein. So talk about a, a little bit for some of our younger audience who may not understand why splenic vein access, like at that time was kind of a thing or like the spleen was just kind of a, I don't know, a no touch area or, you know, that so many complications, a lot of taboo associated with the spleen. So like this thought occurring to you, it, it, could you provide some context about splenic vein access at the time? You're absolutely right. You know, in, in, you know, for, I trained in the nineties and for forever, you know, the spleen, you can't touch, you can't biopsy, you can't do anything. You'll bleed, you'll have a hemorrhage, you'll need a splenectomy, you know, make sure you get your pneumovax. All of these things are the, are the, are the, the things you had heard for 20 plus years, but it turns out that with, you know, micropuncture system, one puncture, you know, a five French sheath, and you can do a lot of work with a five French sheath now with the modern tech uh, the equipment that we have. With a five French sheath, you can do a lot of, of good work, particularly here since you're trying to recanalize in that direction, in the direction of the liver. And so, yes, it was taboo to even think about it, which is why, it, you, know, uh, you know, at Northwestern, I had made sure that our surgeons were on board. And they're like, look, we want to transplant them, do what you, what you feel is best. And it, it was, it was a complete, it was a practice changer, uh, from moving forward. So the spleen is not as taboo as, as, as people may think. All right. So the spleen, splenic access, one of the big unlocks. Can you, can you give some, uh, color commentary on how to access the spleen? Some yeah. things that you've learned throughout the experience that make for a safe or not only safe, but just more comfortable experience. Yes. Yes. So 
if you're working up a patient, again, we're talking about cirrhotic patients right now. So yep. if you're working up a patient for a portal vein recanalization, make sure that you track back that main splenic vein all the way in a straight line intraparenchymally, right? It's going to bifurcate, but you want to find that one that goes in the parenchyma. And that's what you want to puncture under ultrasound because you want, as soon as you get in, you puff some contrast, you see the contrast go, and you want your 018 wire to go straight. If you see your wire start to get lost in hilum, you're in the wrong spot. And mm -hmm. don't upsize to five French and find your way. You will get yourself in a lot of trouble. You cannot mess with that splenic hilum. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble. And then, you know, you have to embolize on the arterial side and you haven't even done what you wanted to do. Spend the time. If it's the wrong spot, don't, don't, don't be afraid to abandon that access. Pull your 21 gauge needle out. It's no big deal. Uh, and find the right one, but you must find the right one. Spend the time to review that imaging and make sure that you puncture that same one. So you puncture that vein, you advance your 018, and you see your 018 go all the way down and down the SMV. And when you see that under fluoro, that's it. The ball game's effectively over. There's nothing to do. You upsize to your to, to your five French system, you upsize your five French sheath, and then use a company and a glide wire to drill back uh, after you do some, some venography to drill back into the thrombose portal vein. Can you speak a little bit about some some operators will describe uh, not an audible but a tactile pop that they feel whenever they get into the right vein or when they get to a splenic vein? Is that something that you've experienced? I, I can't say that I've experienced that. Maybe I have, but I haven't really paid enough attention to it because I'm more okay. most focused on the imaging. But you know, okay. at the end of the day, with the ultrasound skills that you know interventionals have now, you know, you've got that right spot. You know, you need to puncture exactly there in the parenchyma. You know, a good two or three centimeters in the parenchyma. And then, and then use that as an access. Okay. Yep. All right. So we've got splenic vein access. Everything went, goes nice and smoothly. You've upsized to your 035 system with AccuStick or, or whatever your preferred equipment is. And then now the next sheath is five French sheath. Five French. Length. 25 yeah, do you have any preferences? Five French, 25 centimeters. Cause you know, you don't want to okay. be work cause sure. you don't, you don't want to use something longer than you're limited in what future devices you use, but five okay. French radio opaque tip, radio opaque tip, five French sheath. And then a 65 centimeter compi. I advance my compi down to the SMV and do an SMV venogram, i.e. basically a mesenteric venogram, because I want to mm -hmm. see the entire lay of the land. Where are the cavernomas? Okay. Where are the varices? And often you might see a little cord or you might see nothing. But uh, many times you'll see a small cord and that that's your target. Okay. It makes sense to me that if you see the cord, one, I'm imagining and I've seen pictures, it can be a little disoriented for the uninitiated. Yes. Um, but you just have to make sense of what you're seeing. Yes. And if you see the cord, it seems straightforward. You drill down towards the cord. Yes. What if you don't see the cord? So if you don't see a cord, now, most of the time in a cirrhotic, you will see some cord. If you do not, okay. if you do not, the reason you do that splenic, sorry, the SMV venogram is because you know the cavernomas, Chris, you know the cavernomas all reconstitute in the portal venous system intraparenchymally. That's why the portal veins are open when you have cavernoma, because that's how they're perfused. And mm -hmm. so if you see nothing and you don't know, so first of all, you can probe a little bit. So scrape along that, you know, that turn where the SMV and the SV become one. So you can scrape a little bit. And about half the time you'll see something because the flow is so low that unless you're right into it, you won't see anything. But in fact, I did one about two weeks ago, we saw nothing. And as we were scraping, literally that cord was, you know, narrower than the, than the compi, you know, but it was okay. there. Now, if you don't see that, then you, attention is turned to the right portal vein percutaneously. That's why you also prep the liver in these cases. Then you puncture, then you puncture that peripheral system, and then you start drilling back. Because now you know where to go, right? You've got a compi 
in the splenic vein SMV, now you have some directionality. So your next move is to puncture the portal vein and that will bail you out almost all the time. Okay. Yeah. How often are you having to, like if you have splenic access, good splenic access, you probe a little bit, you see nothing, where cases are ending up where you still do that right portal stick? In the cirrhotic patient population, mm -hmm. it's very uncommon. In mm -hmm. the cirrhotic patient population, about 40% of the time, because the physiology of the two entities is different. And that's why I'm differentiating cirrhotic PVR recan versus non-cirrhotic PVR recan. Hold on, maybe I missed it. You said in the cirrhotic population, it's very common to have to stick the portal vein. I, I, I no. got it mixed up. Well, no, yeah. So we're still in the cirrhotic patient population. Most okay, of the okay. time, most of the time you will see a cord. And if you don't see a cord, then you have to stick the, the portal vein. But that scenario is relatively uncommon. Got it. In the cirrhotics. But you were asking how to bail yourself out. You bail yourself out, no matter cirrhotic, non-cirrhotic, is by taking it to the next step, which is, which is a, a stick the right portal vein. Okay. And then as far as recan techniques, once you've identified the cord, probing with a little glide wire, stiff glide wire, trying to get it to buckle on itself, what's, what's the strategy there? Usually when your wire starts to go a little bit, you'll see you start spinning, it'll start mm -hmm. to go advance your catheter. What I like to do right then and there is inject a little contrast because you're going to see sort of some, some tracking of the contrast all the way up either into the left or right portal vein. But now you have a guide, sort of like a little roadmap. So I would do that. And then you work slowly with your glide wire until you get up into the peripheral right portal vein, you advance your catheter, and then you're ready for your next step, which is your snare, because that's going to be your target. Just out of curiosity, how much time is spent kind of, uh, like how much of the, the case ends up is made up of just like the, the probing and the trying to locate the portal vein, or is this, you know, this can, this can go real lightning quick, or this is something that's kind of like delicate, like CTO kind of work? In the, no, no, definitely not delicate like CTO. Mm. So in the cerotic okay. patient, uh, yeah, in the cerotic patient population, this is, the, that, that portion is 10, 15% of the case. It's surprisingly relatively straightforward. Okay. Got it. Yep. All right. So now you got your company and you're looking to select the right portal system, yes. which presumably would be open because yeah. if you have cavernous transformation, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. And so you get the company into the right spot, then what? Then what I do is I advance a 10 millimeter gooseneck. Now, why 10 millimeter? 10 millimeter because it's the only gooseneck that fits through an 035038 system. The other ones, you need a larger system. Now, some people have, like to use, you know, the end snares, et cetera. I don't like that because there's no directionality. I like mm -hmm. using snares with directionality. That's why most of the time, no matter what I'm doing, I'm using a 10 millimeter gooseneck and I drive with either a Compi or an MPA. And that gives me a lot of distance excursion to cover a lumen. But usually I use a Compi, I advance my uh, snare. And remember that if you see the snare open in your view, it's closed from your puncture, right? Because in your view, you know, right. so, so you actually want your snare to look closed so that when you're puncture from above, right? So these are some little, little tricks that you learn. But at the end of the day, in many cases, that portal vein is hyperperfused of small. That snare is not going to open up very much anyway. So there's going to be a little bit of working of your of your needle as you're puncturing into there. So you then you so you deploy your snare and then you use AP and RAO projections to make sure that you're advancing close to that snare. Sometimes the AP distance is high, so you have to put a big dis, a big bend on your needle to get anterior. And then, but don't be afraid to use AP RAO, AP RAO, AP RAO to make sure, and sometimes you need LAO as well, but most of the time those two projections and you get right on top of that and you pop through your snare. So here's another thing that I was just thinking about in terms of trying to land that stick. Is it like a tip stick where you go from hepatic vein, drill down one strong pass, or 
are you kind of inching it along, like getting closer and closer? Um, do you know what I mean? Yes. The difference between? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so it, it is one strong pass up to the snare. And then I want to, and then I want to work the snare. Okay. Because sometimes what you'll see, uh, Chris is, is your snare has maybe uh, a little too much of a bend. All right. Mm -hmm. So what you do rather than giving everything up is you actually, in that projection, you pull back your needle, you literally bend your needle 180 because it's not mm -hmm. going to be 180 at the tip, sure. but you then go a little posterior and then you can pop into it without giving up that access. Right. Cause I, I don't like to give up my needle. Once I'm in the parenchyma, I got advanced sheaths and do all sorts of other maneuvers. So, so, so use that bend to your advantage. And even if you're a little anterior, pull back, go straight posterior and then, and then puncture again. Okay. And what do you like for a uh, tip set? I like the cook set, the cook set. So the, the, uh, the colapinto needle, the, yeah. uh, the colapinto needle, the, the 10 French angled sheath. I don't like the straight sheath. I like the angled, yeah. the angled uh, sheath because I can work with it when I'm advancing it in my, in my, uh, hepatic vein. So that's like, that's the system I like. I like the, I don't like the 21 gauge systems. I like that large needle. Okay. Gotcha. Are there any troubleshooting techniques that you could give to people who are starting out with portal vein recans as to, as far as things that you've learned along the way that makes hitting that snare a little bit easier? I mean, we talked about like different obliquities, you talked about kind of strong throw up into the snare and then, you know, needling it down a little bit more uh, directionally. Anything else that you kind of learned along the way that's been helpful? Y yeah. Have your operator that's driving the snare also help you. So if you, for some reason, are in front or in back of it all the time where it's collapsed, Have your mm -hmm. operator on the splenic side, you know, spin that a little bit to get into a, a better, a better plane, because often it's just one millimeter and you're really touching the, 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 the cord of the snare, but you're just bouncing off and you just need it to be turned a little bit. And then you, and then you bounce through. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys tried anything else? Like any sticks of like trying to stick a balloon or a Fogarty or like an angioplasty balloon or. No, I'm F. very much, I'm very much against that technique. Let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is, you know, if I have a compi, I'm through a thrombose portal venous system, right? I don't have a patent lumen in any way. So you'd have to die. You would have to presume you're in the right channel. You'd have to dilate that whole channel first, then puncture the balloon and then advance the wire, assuming that lumen's going to stay patent. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So, so I like, I like the control of grabbing the exchange length stiff glide wire that I'm going to pull because then I can pull my entire system down. I have through and through access from both sides. If you just puncture a balloon, you're still going to be pushing everything from above through a stiff wire. Okay. Right? Because you can't get through and through access, I think, unless somebody has a trick I don't know, if you puncture a balloon to have through and through splenic access. I was thinking that if you punctured that, well, th that's just me getting off yes. of the weed. So okay. let's go with what you got. Yeah, okay, I, I like that. I, I like through and through because then if you have a very scarred portal vein, you know, you can pull your sheath from, you know, as you're pushing from above, you're pulling from the splenic side. I just like that through and through access. It allows me to do all sorts of stuff, particularly in the non-serotic patient population, but, but we certainly do it all the time with serotics. So once you've stuck the snare, you feed an exchange link, Glide and plats. What, do you, what do you like for your wire? Exchange stiff glide. length stiff glide. Of course. Yes. Yep. Exchange length stiff glide because it slides through everything. And then I will use a 100 centimeter angled catheter, advance through the IJ, out the spleen, and then exchange for an exchange stiff, uh, exchange amplats to do all my okay. work. Okay. Will, will you back up? I think that once that some people are going to miss that next step when you're pulling out uh, the exchange length glide. Yes. Um, any tips? Any tips in terms of not creating so much tension on that wire to create like a, a laceration effect yes, as yes. you're okay very smart so number one is 
only take about an inch and a half of the oh, glide wire. People will be like, they'll panicking that they, they yeah. don't want to lose wire. <laughs> they'll put too much of the stiff glide and you now have stiff wire. No, no, you want the floppy tip of the stiff glide. So you grab that. Then what you're doing is you're actually pushing from above and then the, the person from below is getting that slack. You push, create slack, you pull on the slack. You push, create slack from above and you pull. You don't primarily pull because you could create Last, uh, you know, a laceration in the inside mm -hmm. of the liver if you're primarily pulling from the splenic access because you're literally slicing on the inside of the portal vein. Okay. Does that make sense? All right. So now, yeah. yes, no, it makes it perfect sense. And so now that you've got the through and through access, and I think you said it, but just to reiterate, you've got the um, access, then catheter goes on, IJ access, and you can exchange out for whatever the preferred working Correct. wire is. And you said amplats. You amplats. Like. Exchange amplats. Yep. And then got you it. do all your work through that. Yep. Okay. So now, effectively, once you flossed, the game is won, right? Correct. The game so is won. as far as the game is won. So we're now we're just tuning up. But as far as like landing the tips, one of the things that would occur to me that may be a little difficult is that there's there's certainly a tactile situation whenever you're pulling back the tips and where you um you know release the uncovered portion, then you can pull back and you can feel it bump up against the parenchyma. Yes. But I assume you don't have that feeling when you're in a thrombose system. Yes. Well, two things. One is I've never really been a big believer in the necessity to pull that tips to, in a normal tips. I've never mm -hmm, been a big mm -hmm. believer in needing to, to really deploy the distal two centimeters, pull, and then deploy. I haven't really done that. I've really just placed the tips where I want the tips like to be. Exactly. Perfect. Number one. Number two, you're absolutely right. Uh, in this system, it's not, there's no lumen. There's nothing for you to pull. You can't, you know, deploy where you want. So again, same principle applies. I deploy my stent where I want it to land, period. I guess then the question that I'm trying to get at is what is the landing zone? The landing zone, the landing zone is the following. Once you're in, you do a, a, a venogram, you see your small cord of a portal vein. I want to basically land the distal end of the tips about four centimeters into the, the main portal vein so that the surgeon's got about four centimeters of work where he can ligate. Okay. Okay. That's the landing zone. So. And, and, the, and then your more proximal landing zone of the hepatic vein is correct, the same correct, as what it always correct, is. Exactly. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And, and so that's what I was trying to get at uh, with the, the audience is that you want to leave enough working room for the transplant surgeon where they have something where they're going to be able to sew into. All right. So we talked about landing zone and leaving some portal vein for the uh, surgeon to sew into. Yeah. Um, so you've got, your, you've got your tips deployed and you want to do your portogram. Yeah. And when you do that... What are some of the things that you're looking for? And more importantly, what are some of the things that, you, that you're seeing that you don't care about? Yeah. It's a little bit of a loaded question, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So, so a couple of things. One is, just so you know, so when I started doing this, I was, I was really afraid of rupturing the portal vein. I didn't know what this portal vein would look like, right? It's chronically sure. occluded for 15 years, 20 years. Now I'm going to dilate it. And it, so, so I used to only dilate it to eight millimeters and I would not embolize competing varices. Why? Because if I embolize competing varices and my tips and portal vein goes down, then the patient has no outflow. So mm -hmm. for my first, you know, several years, I didn't embolize varices. And that's how I have one month venograms on everybody. If you look at some of my early papers, I've gone one month venography. That's because I wasn't occluding the, the, the competing shunts. So now we go all the way to 12. We go 10 and then 12. And we inject, we do reflux injections through our sheath that I keep mid-tips, all right? Okay. And I go all the way to 12. And we will go ahead and embolize varices because now we know we've demonstrated the patency of this system is, is legitimate. That chronically scarred portal vein will stay open. 
And sometimes those competing varices are so big, I won't do everything in one setting. It's just a, a lot of a lot of work, a lot of contrast, whatever. Sure. But you can, if you want, go ahead and embolize the varices up front, as long as you have a nice, mature, uh, patent portal vena system, and you can see that right away. It's, it's amazing what the portal vein looks like when it was just a cord a few minutes before, you dilate it and there's flow. It's pretty, it's pretty surprising. It's sort of unbelievable, to be honest with you. So when we're talking about those varices, one of the things that's a little bit unsaid, um, but I think some people are following along, will you, will you talk about the advantage to why you might embolize those varices and what it will do for the portal system flow? Yeah. So so I'm embolizing those varices to augment my patency rate and to maximize the, the lytic effect of the blood flow if there's any irregularity. If you look at some of my early papers, there's a statistic I have in there which says the following. 70% of the time, there's like a little mural clot that you see in that portal vein that you just opened up, but a month later, it's almost all gone because the flow is what sort of lice that. So we don't anticoagulate those cirrhotics. We don't do any of those things. And lo and behold, a month later, those veins would be open. And we left some of those, you know, out of just sheer fatigue. We were exhausted. It's been eight hours. You know, we said, okay, there's some flow here. Let's hope for the best. And sure enough, by serendipity, you see that that vein is patent a month later. In some of the early work, when y'all were just figuring it out, did y'all experiment with um, some thrombectomy devices or thrombolytics in the portal system? Zero. Zero. Okay. Because effectively, it, 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 it con always converged into a, a work of the main portal vein itself. That was always the area. And, so, and it was chronically scarred. And so there was never like a huge mural thrombus to deal with. It was just, you know, um, some bands and some scarring intraluminally that we would break with a balloon and now with new established flow would remain open. Okay. All right. So 10 and 12 millimeter balloons, you may not have the prettiest portal system, but flow is your friend in this situation. Correct. Embolize the varices, which Correct. will also work to improve flow. Okay. Correct. So at this point, is there anything left to do? I mean, is, no, are we this, ready to at this close? Point, at this point, uh, you know, you, you I mean, obviously you have to close you have to disconnect your system if you have through and through. So you have to disconnect your system. So I usually just advance a compi from the IJ and just disconnect the two wires, the splenic. And then I coil embolize that track with some nesters uh, on the way out. Some people like to use glue or whatever, but do it under ultrasound. So you don't, you know, use up too much of that vein in case you ever need to stick it again to do whatever. Uh, so, so make sure that you pull back your compi all the way back into that vein and then get into the parenchyma and then start deploying, start deploying those, those nesters. Be careful. I mean, one, it'll be easy. Sometimes, you know, we've made a mistake and that second one, you know, was, you know, um, on the surface of the spleen, the person had pain. Mm -hmm. We had to sort of go and go and get that second coil. So be careful of that second coil. Okay. Yep. Good tip. Yep. And I guess like closing the spleen kind of speaks to good splenic access and that you want to leave yourself enough track to close at the end Correct. where you're not like on the very, okay. Correct. So don't, don't take my, what I said about, you know, a nice peripheral portal vein to the extreme. And you're like, sure. you got one centimeter in, that, that's, that's a little too cute. You want to be sort of mid-spleen mid and, and take it from there. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I wrote down um, to just ask you about, is, is CO2 ever helpful in any of these situations? Like I remember you described your wedged uh, venogram, which you used dilute contrast. Is CO2 ever a, a value add in this um, for these procedures? I've never really been, uh, I've never used much CO2 for, for tips, to be honest with you. I, okay. I just feel like, you know, most of the time, almost all the time, a nice dilute syringe of contrast with good DSA and good breath hold will give you all the information you're looking for. So, so I'm sure there are some people that have done it and maybe in fact, you can reflux even further, but for the purposes mm -hmm. of this, I'm doing that wedge because I want to see what intraparenchymally looks like in case I need to puncture it. Not because I need to know what the spleen looks like. I know exactly what the spleen looks like from the imaging. Gotcha.
That actually touched on a point that I didn't bring up. I'm assuming these are all done under GA? Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, so the procedure's done post-procedurally, staying overnight, home the next day? Yeah. So post-procedurally, uh, they stay overnight. They're monitored. We see what their liver functions do. And um, probably about 70% might go home late the next day. But, you know, not in insignificant. We'll stay just early that second day. So if I'm done on Wednesday... You know, 70% are gone Thursday night and 100% are gone Friday morning. Okay, gotcha. So after the patients are discharged, what does follow-up for these patients look like? So I always like to get uh, some sort of uh, cross-sectional imaging a month out. Uh, I do it because I still learn from it. I learn about what the varices look like. I learn about what I need to do to complete it. Uh, we can measure the distance of the portal vein. The surgeon's happy about what he needs to ligate or where he can, where, where he can ligate, et cetera. So, so it gives everybody a lot of information. And then after that, you know, we can go on to ultrasound just for patency. And so those KM curves that I generate are based on ultrasound later on that the tips is open, et cetera. But, but you want some anatomic information just to make sure there's not much work, more work for you to do. And results as far as transplant, like is transplant happy? Like what, what does it look like as far as, I don't know how many patients you guys are still following, but how many are going on to transplant and how many are having successful like end-to-end -end anastomosis with you know, nice looking portal veins. In our first uh, series that we published, um, you know, we had 61 patients, 24 ultimately went to transplant and 23 of the 24 underwent end-to-end -end anastomosis. The other ones at the time are still like on the list or whatever and still waiting. So when we did our analysis, 23 of the 24 underwent end-to-end -end anastomosis. We extended that now. We just published a paper in Hepatology Communications uh, and that number is up to 35. Numbers are great end-to-end, -end, very high patency rate. It is our institutional standard for sure, and I know other people are adopting that as well. Let me ask you this. Do you get any feedback from the transplant surgeons as far as maybe something that doesn't bear out exactly, like there's not a great metric to follow, but do they say, hey, sewing into these is, is kind of a pain, but you know, it's certainly better than the alternative, or do they give any feedback as to what the, their like, experience is like? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it's like, yeah, they'll notice that this thing's a little bit more friable, but with eight months of flow, like right now with transplant, as you know, we, you got to wait for six, eight, 10 months or whatever. And so that's why you mm -hmm. really want to time it and not necessarily have to wait until the last minute, right? I don't want somebody to call me and say, I got a liver for this guy. Can you do a PVR <laughs> recan? I'm transplanting sure. him tomorrow. So you want to leave some time so that the wall thickens and matures again with, with flow. But so most of the time they tell me we had no problem. A few times they did say, ah, this one's a little thin, et cetera. I need to put some extra sutures in there and it worked fine. But, but most of the time, most of the time, it's not, it's not an issue. That's great. All right. So now that we've talked about follow-up, we've talked about endpoints. How about this? Helpful resources, like someone who's been through training, they're maybe at a tertiary referral center, they're looking to get into like complex portal vein recanalizations, some papers, some resources you could recommend, maybe something yeah. you've pinned. Yeah. So obviously, obviously, <laughs> you know, uh, that's a lot of work that we've done. So if you look up myself or Bart Thornburg, Bart Thornburg is my partner in crime here. Where, where, where he was my fellow, but he's really taken this on. Bart and I did write a paper seven, eight years ago in TVIR, Techniques, that literally is a step-by-step, -step, do this, look for that, do this oblique, watch out for this. I think those papers are very important for, for a lot of people just because that'll cover 80% of the bread and butter work. And then, of course, 20% will require, you know, your experience and your, your senior guys, et cetera. But, you know, we have that, we ha we've, we've done that. The frustrating part, Chris, I sort of feel with, with all this is, how polarizing this topic is in the transplant community. Like when you show this to the transplant surgeons, some guys will say, well, you know, we have no problems with this. 
and then you look at their numbers and they don't transplant anybody with cavernoma. So, you know, they're, they're indirectly, indirectly excluding these patients. Uh, and it's, it's hard to capture that metric. And some will say, oh, we do a renal portal anastomosis and we do this and we do that. But at the end of the day, the transplant surgeons themselves, well, last name is Hibi, H-I-B-I, group from Miami, they published mm -hmm. this paper and they themselves said, if you can't do an end-to-end, -end, the outcomes are bad, do not do it. So this is really, this comes from that research and for us trying to find a solution for that problem. So is that how you got into portal vein recans? You were looking for one more polarizing topic to get into? Yes, because it was Y90, because Y90 wasn't <laughs> enough. Right? That 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 wasn't enough. That's right. Right. So yeah. I just <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's great. Yeah. So uh is there anything that I didn't talk about? Is there any stone left unturned that you're like, wow, Chris? Well, I don't you know, know how much time just... we have. I think we're approaching our yeah, hour, like, but we should we, have because we mentioned like the SMV IMV access, yes. and I thought that would be a neat Yeah. So, so a couple of things maybe to, to close off on. One is I really think Chris, we should have at some point another session and talk about the non-serotics. Non-serotics are distinctly different, and I feel like it is a, a huge unmet need. There's a patient population walking around out there that are 40 years old, 45. There are blogs out there. They have cavernoma. They have huge varices. They've bled several times. Nobody has a solution for them. Interventionalists haven't adopted the PVR and the serotics, let alone that patient population. It's a topic unto itself because from a technical standpoint, it's distinctly different. And many mm -hmm. of the recommendations I would make have a, have a slight modification. So I think it's worthy of another back table at some point. But in terms Fair. of for this to close off the serotic, yes. Sometimes you will have to stick the SMV directly or the IMV directly. And I have done that because sometimes it gives you that pathway that you need if the splenic vein is occluded because of pancreatitis or because of something else. You need a way to get to that portal vein. So it's very easy to puncture the IMV and the SMV. We've published a couple of papers on it already uh, and add that to your toolbox uh, whenever, you, when you, whenever you're in trouble. So as far as like locating, because I think most people have the skill set to where if they can find the vein, they can hit the vein. Yep. And then once you've hit it, then, you know, the, it's just a matter of uh, a couple more steps. Yes. How do you find the SMV? How do you find the IMV? So you obviously need very good cross-sectional imaging. And again, I go back mm -hmm. to CT number one. Number sure. two, on ultrasound, on the table, I use the SAG plane. I can compress it. I can see it. And I puncture it. You're going to have to go through and through with the SMV most of the time. It collapses okay. instantly on you. So you got to go sure. through and through. And then you got to pull back as you're puffing. And then, you know, just be very careful because you basically collapse the vein. And then you're mm -hmm. barely a millimeter. Or so when, you, when, you're, when you're pulling back, it's barely a millimeter AP at that point to get your, to get your, wire, to, to get your wire to go through. But you got to go through and through. Okay. Yeah. All Mad right. So that's ultrasound. Pretty straight. Pretty straightforward. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. So to our audience, thank you guys for listening. If you guys enjoyed this podcast but want more, check out the show notes on the episode. I'm going to reference uh, a couple of the articles that we mentioned and make sure those can be found uh, by www.backtable.com. Thank you to our med students who make sure that those are out uh, out and on time. Um, we really appreciate it, guys. And remember, the show notes can also be found next to a link. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, two easy ways. First, one second, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes, Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting a lot of value, leave us a short written review. We read them all. We love the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back to Bill podcast. Riyadh, thanks, man. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.